Welcome to Gate City Chatter, a podcast showcasing the creative people and cultural happenings that make Greensboro, North Carolina, a leading hub of research, my friend. Staff from the city of Greensboro produce this podcast. We record and edit Gate City Chatter here with our friends at Press Play Studios in the Greensboro Cultural Center in the heart of downtown Greensboro. Uh, this is your host, Josh Sherrick, joined as always by my co-host, Matt Feltz. Hey, Josh. How are you, buddy? Fine. Yeah, man. Good. Happy Friday. Hey, happy Friday. As the youth say, happy Friday. The kids. We'd like to thank everyone for their support and continued energy and love for our podcast. Today, we welcome an excellent guest, Chris Ray, a great man, great researcher. He is the associate professor of kinesiology for the University of North Carolina at Greensboro and director for the Virtual Environment for Assessment and Rehabilitation Laboratory, also known as the Veer Lab. Welcome to the podcast, Chris. Thanks for having me, guys. This is great. Man, I'm so happy we finally got you on the pod. You do some of the coolest stuff of like anybody I know, <laughs> and I'm glad that we can share it with all the chatterheads out there today. Um, so everything we're going to talk about today is like really interesting, really uh, fast forward, like futuristic kind of research. And you are leading that helm. So, I mean, I hope without the visual pleasure of like seeing a lot of this stuff, folks can like really digest what you do and what's happening here in Greensboro and how important that is. So uh, give us like a rundown, man. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got to like, got to Greensboro and got to this level. And then we'll talk a lot about your research and the things you're doing. That sounds great. So I originally started this venture as a physical education major. I thought I was going to be a teacher and a coach. Yeah. And, and that's still very near and dear to my heart. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have a lot of friends that are still doing that. To me, it's an incredibly important field that we don't dump enough resources into given the uh, obesity epidemic in America. Oh, yeah. So that's the route I was going. Um, and uh, one of the core classes that you have to take as an undergraduate physical education major is a biomechanics class, which I had never heard of biomechanics. Um, it's not really a word that's commonly used outside of colleges in terms of uh, the normal lexicon. You don't take a biomechanics class in high school or anything like that, typically. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I was really interested in this class once I read the course description, and it was the integration of math, physics, and human movement, and specifically sports, yeah. uh, sports movement. And so uh, I had been playing sports ever since I was a little kid, was always really interested in, in math and physics, and but never really saw how I could pair all those things together. And so at that point, uh, I was really stoked to take the class, really enjoyed it, ended up doing an undergraduate uh, uh, research experience with my undergrad biomechanics professor. And by the way, this was in Missouri. Uh-huh. Oddly enough, my undergraduate biomechanics professor did his doctorate at UNCG. Oh, really? Small nice. world. Nice. <laughs> so, you returned back yeah, to right. pay it off. All yeah, right. right. That's yeah. cool. So he's the one that really got me uh, very excited in this um, in this field. And then uh, from there, with his help, he kind of pointed me to a few different places. Went down to uh, Barry University in Miami Shores, Florida mm-hmm. to do my master's degree, um, particularly in sport biomechanics. So we did all kinds of fun things like a 3D motion analysis of a golf swing and uh, what kind of uh, music can we play to pump you up during a max bench press to get the, nice. the optimal biomechanics, right. all kinds can, of fun stuff like that. I do that, that a lot. I, yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I constantly experiment on myself when I'm <laughs> yeah. doing, doing yeah. presses, yeah. And some in your audience may also know uh, this phenomenon called cup stacking. It was something that kind of took up my master's oh, thesis yeah. was on cup stacking. So what's the <laughs> biomechanics and coordination of cup stacking before and after you've learned how to do it? And uh, so that's where I kind of learned the tricks of the trade of biomechanics and using physics and mathematics to understand human motion. Uh, and there, uh, from that point, I ultimately decided, all right, uh, sports biomechanics is really interesting. Not a whole lot of jobs in it. Um, and it, how much... Uh, impact can we have doing sport biomechanics compared to if we were to go to, say, general medical conditions and, and so forth. So 
Um, then leapfrogged up to Purdue University uh, because they, their biomechanics program there in the kinesiology department was looking kind of at more, I guess, public health issues is a good mm-hmm. way to kind of think about it. So falls in older adults and that kind of stuff. What what can we do with biomechanics to understand why people fall and what ultimately can we do to retrain them so that we can reduce fall risk throughout their lifespan? So that was a lot of the work that I did there. Um, and then kind of did another sort of introspection and saying, all right, where's the field going? Um, I think virtual reality is going to be a thing. And this was in, uh, I was there at uh, Purdue from 04 to 08. And so this is before virtual reality was near as common as what it is now. Mm -hmm. Um, But there were some labs that were exploring the use of virtual reality for a variety of different things and thought, okay, this might be a way to do that. Um, my A lot of my work in my grad program at, at Purdue was focused on using vision uh, to walk around the world. So as you're walking down the street, um, somehow, usually, you don't run into someone, you don't run into the light pole, you don't <laughs> run into the building, and that's all because we're using visual information. Um, but what happens uh, as our visual information degrades? What happens if we can't pick up that change in the elevation from the curb going down? Well, then you are putting a stressor on the system and you may end up tumbling. And so that's what a lot of my work was in is how do we use vision to walk around the world and not fall over? So looking then forward, I thought, well, if we could put someone in virtual reality, we could control the visual information that they're getting because we program the virtual environment. So if we could control the visual information, that might be a way to control the motor output, might be a unique way to retrain people in particular ways to reduce fall risk over time. And so then I started looking around and there was a uh, virtual reality lab at Brown University that had an opening for a postdoc. And so I applied and, and got in there and spent two and a half years learning how we might be able to program and use virtual reality in this particular context. Um, so that was my kind of postgrad training. And then a uh, job opened here in the kinesiology department at UNC Greensboro. And, uh, you know, at that point, uh, virtual reality is becoming a little more common mm-hmm. in terms of people understanding what it might be able to do. And uh, since that time, we have uh, taken off and, and really developed the lab around the use of virtual reality uh, in, in context of gait and balance and postural control and really to kind of motor skill learning uh, in general. Go ahead. I was going to say, break down the, the term kinesiology mm-hmm. uh, at its sort of most basic. I guess a lot of people might not be familiar with it. So what is it? Yeah. So at its root, it's uh, kinesiology is just the study of human um, movement. Right. Um, and so that can be from a variety of different perspectives. It could be from the mechanical perspective. That's where biomechanics comes in. It could be from more of the cognitive perspective. That's mm-hmm. where uh, sport and exercise psychology comes in. It could be from a developmental perspective. So how do kids develop motor skills throughout their lifespan? And then how do those motor skills change uh, later in life? That's some motor development, motor learning. Um, could be from a physiology perspective. So people take blood and look at all the blood chemistries. Before and after, that's exercise physiology. So all of those subdomains are are within the field of kinesiology. And one thing that I'm really proud about of our uh, department here at UNCG, we have have always been and have remained committed to being a comprehensive kinesiology department. There's a lot that have transitioned for one reason or another to we're going to really focus on exercise physiology. We're going to really focus on biomechanics and kind of let the rest of the stuff go. To me, you know, there's some value in doing that if that's what's important to you. But to me, to be in a comprehensive kinesiology department means all of those subfields can talk to each other. So how is the brain connected to the mechanics and how the mechanics connected to the physiology, right? To have all those people in a department is incredibly important. And one of the things that we've continued to be committed to here at UNCG. That's really cool. Is that – is I mean, you know, virtual reality is so – like you said, it's, you know, kind of like all the technology. It comes on pretty – 
slow and then all of a sudden it's there and it's moving fast, right? I mean, can you talk a little bit about either one, like do universities embrace that level of like research at a different way? I mean, it sounds like they did it at Brown, obviously, but did you have to find a place that was that was passionate or, or at least interested in doing that virtual reality piece? And like what, you know, what is the normal, you know, does every university do this? Yeah, I think it does take some kind of forward thinking from the university leadership. Could be at the department level all the, all the way up. Uh, when I was here in, in 2010 doing my job interview, um, the people that I chatted with about the potential of this, they got it, right? And I don't know that it would be that way across the board if you're interviewing an XYZ university. But here they got it because they're really looking for forward thinking in our department. This is one way that we could do that. What if we brought in this guy that could do VR? We don't know if it will work because the stuff at that time was incredibly expensive. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know which direction the field was going. And I'm sure we'll get into this here in a little bit. But the virtual reality field has changed dramatically over the last oh, yeah. eight, yeah. To, uh, eight to ten years. And so – um, you know, I had a sort of a pipe dream that I could only take it so far until the industry world took off with virtual reality. Um, and so uh, I, I think here we had some unique leadership at the time and still do over at the university that is very forward thinking, um, not just let's do status quo, but what are the next things out there? And there's a lot of great examples of this over at UNCG between the joint school um, that we connect with at A&T on nanoscience and nanoengineering. But even in our kind of more traditional departments, I mean, you go to psychology, they're doing really cool things. You go to history, they're doing really cool things. You go to nutrition and they're mm-hmm. integrating with these big databases across the country uh, looking at food deserts. And it, so there's funny. a lot of stuff there. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. really funny to see how once that you know, the, the the spark of VR has been around for a while now, you know. Mm-hmm. But then once it really takes off and then you start to see it becomes more affordable and you see the, the widespread application across entertainment, education, and everything else. Like, it's all of a sudden everybody's doing VR right. stuff, you know. And I'm sure it has a lot of application between different departments. But, you know, even just uh, teaching and training, you mm-hmm. know, simulating these sort of uh, often complex and a lot of the times situations that don't often happen. Uh, How do you do that in a way that accurately represents, uh, you know, the job for somebody that is actually going to be placed in that position potentially one day? Uh, And back in 2010, it was a completely different animal than it is now. Mm -hmm. I mean, now you have uh, these these application developers that can produce these like, highly realistic sort of movement sets, motion captures, uh, graphics, sound, everything that can really sort of replicate, uh, you know, really any sort of real world situation. And I think that it's really cool. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I, one thing I remember when we first talked about this, Chris, is you giving – I've never even – I think I've been in the lab once. I think I've been to the lab. But for the layperson that's listening to this right now and, and – such a weird term to say layperson. That's such a dumb for, for, silly, for people. Silly, <laughs> silly layperson. Sorry, listeners. You're not lay people. I don't <laughs> even know what that means. But like um, give us like a visual of uh, what you guys actually do in the lab, right? Sure. So this sounds really interesting, but what, what is, you know, because I think you actually use a lot of like participants to study on, but like what could someone actually expect when they come to that lab? Yes. So there's a couple of different ways that virtual reality kind of plays out in the lab. Uh, In its simplest form, it could just be a virtual environment. Essentially just, it almost looks like a computer game that we created that you're interacting with. And so we put that on a big screen in front of the treadmill. And one example of that, that is uh, one of my uh, graduate students projects um, where she had people walking on the treadmill 
while viewing this big screen in front of him. And the speed of the treadmill was tied to the speed at which that environment is moving toward him. So it sort of felt like you're walking through this virtual environment, even though in your periphery, you know, you're in this laboratory on this treadmill. So they're not wearing like headsets. And in this context, oh. no, because this is the essentially the simplest way that we have used it before. And sure. then, um, you know, we could use the goggles, which I'll talk about here in a second. And so in that way, she had sensors on their feet. And as they were walking, they saw their virtual feet walking in real time. And then what she would do is she would put different virtual obstacles in front of them that they had to step over. So it's kind of like the Nintendo Wii game or any of the other games where you had little sensors. So you're interacting in this virtual space, in this game-like space. But it, what it does is it gives you a way to practice these skills in a, in a visually challenging environment. You don't want to hit that obstacle that is coming up to you in this virtual walkway. So you, you end up doing the motor skill that we want you to do, but if you mess up, there's no physical consequence. Mm -hmm. So if I take you down the hallway and I set up these same physical obstacles and you don't do it right, you could potentially trip and fall, right? Mm -hmm. And we want to avoid that in all these kind of training examples. And so that's one of the nice things about virtual reality is you can put people in these visually challenging uh, environments that give you um, a, a way to train up on these motor skills, but you're not going to get hurt. You're going to, at worst, you're going to get an auditory cue that says you hit it. Or you might right. – sometimes we, like, change the color of your foot to red so you know you hit it, right? So you get some visual feedback if I didn't do it right so you can change your motor patterns. And that's the simplest way that we've done that. The way that is much more um, applic applicable these days is you can put on one of these big headsets that a lot of people have seen kind of mm -hmm. out in, in mainstream media. These big headsets used to be these dinosaur things. And in mm -hmm. fact, we have one in the lab. We had – a big one in my postdoc, and we bought a very similar one when I started here in, in uh, January of 2011. And uh, this thing, it looks like a Cooper Mini that's on your head. Like it's just, it's huge <laughs> because the, you know, what we could do with processing and, and visual optics and everything uh, is very different now than then, right? And so not only is it this big thing on your head, but you also have to pack around this big old backpack, which is the visual oh, or wow. the, the sure. computational piece, right? Um, and this was right when HDMI was uh, becoming wireless. And so we had to actually rig up our own HDMI wireless communication system between the computer and this thing. So like there was a Neat. lot of in-lab engineering that had to go on back then. So anyway, you're walking around with this huge thing on your head and this huge backpack. It just doesn't feel real, right? You could do some interesting tests, but it doesn't there, – there's no way that's going to scale to being able to use that in a PT clinic someday sure. or something, right? And so – and this thing was expensive. It was $37,000 to buy this thing, right? More that was than, in 2011. Uh, yeah, more than most <laughs> new cars, right? It's crazy. And so it, at that point was just a fun toy you could use in the lab to do some cool scientific mm -hmm. tests, right? So then fast forward to what is it like these days? Well, these days you could walk to Best Buy, Walmart, Amazon, whatever, and, and get something – very comparable to what we spent $37,000 on for a couple hundred bucks. You could also take the phone out of your pocket and uh, with very low level, there you go. Yeah, very low level, a uh, couple of download clicks and poof, you can turn that into a head mount display, uh, essentially the goggles that, that people see. And so these days, as you said, Matt, like there's a lot of people that can do this app development. There weren't near as many people that could do that before. And so there's more people with a skill set on the software side of things and hardware is really caught up. Um, so that we can merge those two things together. And now what that looks like is people come into the lab. We've purchased a, a, an HTC Vive, which is one of the – it's like an Oculus Rift. There, there's a few kind of com – competitors there, but they all essentially do the same thing. Really made for gaming. Right. That's who they're marketing to, right? So come buy this for a few hundred bucks at Best Buy, and then you could have this immersive experience and be inside the video game, you know, wherever you are in your living room. 
And in fact, the the first time that we got this, I was like, we, we should probably test this, right, in our living room with some of the games just to make sure it's okay. <laughs> All right, now it's good. We're ready for research. And so, um, so what we've done, though, is we've repurposed that and we build our own uh, VR games that are designed to retrain you how to walk or how to balance. So we are doing the software, but we're mm-hmm. repurposing the hardware. So we port that new software into the thing, and then you're inside the video game that is testing your balance or your walking ability and that kind of stuff. So that's what the experience is like now. You come in, you put on this head mount display, and you're in this big open room, and you're inside the game. And you just walk around doing all these tasks in wow. this big open room. And even though you know physically you're in a big open room, it feels like you're in the big open field or yeah. whatever virtual room that we put you in because you can't see anything else. Yeah. It's completely immersive. Do you find that like patients forget like that they are in like – I mean do they – I mean if you, I mean that's the goal, right, is yeah. to get them into that to where they forget that they're in a space and they mm-hmm. are literally in that virtual space. Yeah. It, the visuals almost require you to buy in because you don't have any other option. You can't see around you. You have sort of a memory of the room that you're in, but you're inside the game. And so – uh, there are some people that are cautious because they're like, I think there's a wall over there, but I'm not in this big open space. But that's why we do some practice trials or whatever. But in general, it's a very realistic thing um, to the point to where sometimes it's almost too realistic. And sometimes when we have, you know, university funders or high level folks, we'll, we'll bring in this particular oh, yeah. environment where there's an environment where you walk up and it's the edge of a cliff. And you look over and then there's another like cliff on the other side and there's a, a balance beam or a plank in between them. And you tell people, go ahead and walk across that plank. And those, there's a good portion of folks that refuse to walk across the plank. What? Because nothing, it is so visually realistic. There's nothing like bringing in <clears throat> high-level sponsors and donors and just <laughs> embarrassing them right. like in front of everybody. No, please leave your checkbook the, at the door. <laughs> but it's like those videos, uh, the roller coaster things. When yeah. the phone applications That's first right. started coming out and then yep. you started seeing everybody like get their grand parents to do the, the right. roller coaster VR roller coaster yeah. you know and they're sitting on the chairs and then they all fall out because yeah. it's just it gets so wild exactly it's pretty crazy and th- there have been scientific tests with that too where they'll monitor like heart rate and and how much you're sweating and oh, stuff yeah. like that. Oh, wow. yeah. just to show physiologic this isn't a trick like your physiology is really scary you're getting this stress response right and but you're you were just literally before you put on the helmet you looked around the room you know you're not going to fall down the terrifying thing though is if you do get off that plank too far you do fall and we have it set up where you fall 100 feet. So visually, the world is going, right, ooh, right. yeah, it's, and then I've done it, I don't know, a thousand times. It still gives me goosebumps when I fall off the thing. But it is that realistic. Even if you know you're not going to fall, visually, it, sh- it says you might, and then that's a big enough response in your brain to go, okay, I'm going to buy into whatever this thing looks like. Have you got somebody developing your programs and in, in your games in-house, or mm-hmm. is it an outside sort of developer that's doing that? Yeah, it's a great question because even though it's uh, a little easier, it's not quite as point-and-click ready. Right. Um, and so the the way it used to be done is we had to buy virtual reality uh, software. We had to code it all out ourselves. That's what I did for most of my time, my postdoc, and then my early years here. Um, since that time, there's been some open source software called Unity it, that a lot of people, even in high schools, are teaching Unity coding Super now. Super popular program. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so you can do that um, pretty easily, and there's a lot of good resources out there. And so you can build a virtual environment. So some kid in their basement can do this and then turn their phone into a uh, right. pair of goggles, and then they're in their environment they created. So we use that software now. So that means it's a little more accessible to the general population. What we have traditionally done, and a lot of this has to do with the educational piece, is I'll go over to the computer science department, recruit some undergraduates over there. They're looking for um, kind right. of a unique experience. Right. Come code in our lab. We'll pay you you know, hourly rate to do that, and they'll do that. We've had some really, really good 
good kids that have come through there. Um, and they work in the lab for one to two years, and then they go off and go do something else. But they have something on the resume. It's like, look at these virtual environments. They can post it online. It's right. kind of this online resume piece that they can have that's a unique experience for them. So we've done a lot of that. We are just now at the point to where um, some of the projects that we have, they're probably getting to the level – that we need to have professional programmers. Right. It's just above what a student programmer could or probably should be doing at this point. And so we've, we've just reached out to a, a local company um, over in Raleigh um, that is, is doing this, and, and we're going down the road there. So it, in the future, I still want to keep the uh, student education piece for oh, sure. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, but some, some sort of combination between the students are doing some of the coding and then probably the professional programmers doing some too. Yeah, it's cool. We've, we've started working with a, a – company out of Toronto that used to be a game developer and has now shifted over because that was a, uh, I guess a really competitive field. They've shifted over into doing training, uh, training games. Mm -hmm. So like for, for like certain types of welding and things like that, that allow people to, you know, basically not ruin a bunch of resources, (laughs) uh, but still get that sort of, uh, you know, I guess first person experience out of it as well. But a lot of the same sort of immersive, you know, art direction and, and, and being able to use the motion sensors and things like that translated just super well. So it's kind of a new space. Yeah. There, there's people exploring this for teaching medical students and surgical techniques. Oh, now, right. There, yeah. There's nothing that, that um, quite uh, compares to whenever um, it's on a real human or cadaver, right? But right. the virtual is pretty pretty interesting. We have uh, some of these uh, virtual uh, cadaver dissection uh, tables over at UNCG where they, they look like a huge iPhone. They're the size of uh, basically a dining room table. But what they do is they, they've scanned in real humans but turned them into avatars. And what you can do then is it's a human that's a regular size, and you can take your finger and click on this huge iPhone, click on I want to cut, and then you can cut right through them, and then you can see the different pieces uh, – anatomical like structures stuff? yeah it's all it's and it's all scanned in from real humans That's just really turned cool. into an avatar the cool thing because it's virtual is you can click a button and say get rid of all the skin only leave the the muscles and then poof all the skin is gone you just see the muscles are just the nerves is there a wake up button wow that's really cool yeah so we've got so the school of nursing has some of those kinesiology has some of those for all of our anatomy students sweet yeah so what, like, uh, I think at one point you described, you told me what specific injuries are, or, or like specific medical things are you trying to, or, or have you guys shown a lot of like uh, uh, research? I think at one point you told me like ACL research was one of them, but like, tell us more about like the actual kind of medical things that you're working on through this virtual reality yeah. uh, techniques. So we've been uh, really uh, lucky in positioning ourselves in the laboratory uh, to try to help address some of these human health uh, issues. So early on, we did a little bit of work with uh, ACL injury prevention. So what kind of things could we – retraining of walking patterns and balance patterns to – uh, help people before they got injured. So retrain some of their biomechanics. How cool if you got Zion up here? You know, they're, oh, yeah. Yeah, they're trying to train like yeah. Zion Williamson to like run differently because yep. his running style, they're predicting that he'll be like injury prone. Oh, mm-hmm. really? Yeah. And, and there's a lot of work in, in that particular area in terms of how do we predict? Now that's the golden thing, right? If we knew how to do it, we would keep all these high level athletes and even your your standard high school, middle school kid mm-hmm. from doing that. Um, but that's, that's sort of a, a best guess right now. No one really knows the best way to keep anyone from getting injured. But we thought that virtual reality might have a space in there. So we did a little bit of work in there early on. Um, we have done some work with older adults 
um, especially those who have some sort of neurological injury. So we brought in stroke survivors who have a very asymmetrical walking pattern. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, as you know, a, a stroke, once uh, a stroke has occurred, it affects one side of the body, you know, greater uh, than the other. And so um, you end up with this asymmetrical walking pattern. And we thought, couldn't we use an avatar essentially as like a visual prescription of what we'd like you to do? And so we tested some of that uh, a little bit. And so, um, and we've done some work with uh, older adults as well. So what kind of walking patterns can we retrain them to ultimately reduce some of the, the falls there? And so that's what a lot of our virtual reality uh, work is focused on is injury prevention or once an injury or neurological insult has occurred, what can we do to rehab it? You've said the the word avatar a couple of times. Mm-hmm. Explain what the avatar is in in the world of virtual reality. Yeah, so an avatar is really just a virtual uh, human, and so you could have uh, that avatar, that virtual human, um, that's driven by another human's movement pattern. So the same way that they do motion capture for video games and make the video games look so realistic, or any of the CGI in movies, most of the time that is is someone in a big like a black bodysuit with those little reflective dots right. on it, right? And then they just fit an avatar skin over that. But you can also have an avatar that's kind of pre-programmed with some computer modeling of how it walks. So it's not derived directly from a human. It uses human principles to walk. But in either case, it's a virtual human that where you're using to either interact with or to use as some sort of visual prescription. They're moving with that very symmetrical walking pattern. I'm going to try to do that myself now. Um, so it could be sort of like this coaching type of thing too. That's really cool. So you guys have made some headway on on these type of these research. So what's the, you know, what's the goal? I mean, is the goal to to create these levels of, of research and then launch them into actual practice or like what, I mean, because I think a lot of person, a lot, a lot of people out there don't really know sometimes what university research is and how it connects to our actual built environments. Tell yeah. us a little about that. Yeah. So um, our our long term goal would obviously be to figure out how it works in the laboratory, and then scale to the real world. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's a very challenging and, and time-intensive question. Um, so we've, we focused a lot of how, how does it work, because you got to figure that part out first. And we have a few indications of things that might work well in the lab. Uh, applied for a patent back in 2013, and finally last year it was issued. So we have yeah, a patent now nice. in the laboratory that is uh, it, uh, particularly uh, uses um, uh, particular gait patterns or walking patterns uh, in the avatar to train patient populations. Um, so there is an office at UNCG that helps get tech and other ideas out of UNCG. And so we worked a lot with uh, that particular office and the patent submission process. And I think that's an incredibly important piece at UNCG and really all universities is to ensure that we don't keep all this these ideas in the ivory tower. It's It has to disseminate, especially at state institutions that are funded by state sure. taxpayer dollars. We have an obligation to the public to get that information out. And that could be in a bunch of different ways, could be working directly with the community in certain things, could be through patents that then kind of parlay themselves into business ventures or so forth. Um, So we're committed to that long-term goal of rolling it out of the lab. The pipe dream is at some point we have something that's user-friendly that you could just roll off the shelf, roll into a PT clinic, roll into maybe some in-home exercises and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And someone clicks play and anybody can do it. It doesn't require a high-level understanding of programming or anything else. And you know, we're a ways away from doing that, but that's what the end point is, hopefully. That's really cool. Yeah, I uh, I always thought it would just be really interesting to to just be a, a person in that setting. I mean, like, do you use, like, people from the community, like, to do testing on and, like, or not testing on, but, like, to participate 
in yeah. the lab. Like I always thought this would be. I just want to come. And, I just want to come and just. I bet everybody just wants to come around and play around a virtual reality lab. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, we do. And, and uh, you know, we have a, a big group of graduate students that are in the lab right now, a bunch of uh, Ph.D. students and master's students. Mm-hmm. The, their uh, projects and theses and dissertations range anywhere from young, healthy adults. So we recruit college kids all the time to come into the lab and do different things to older adult populations that are healthy to older adult populations that have increased fall risk or some sort of neurological issue. So what about middle aged populations who just <laughs> bodies the are first, just starting to fail. Yeah, right. <laughs> so it's interesting that you bring that up because I, last summer I was uh, at a conference in Scotland. This is like the big um, uh, walking and balance conference of which falls in older adults is a huge piece of that conference, right? It's a non-drinking conference, right? No, especially <laughs> in Scotland. I don't think you can find you can't find anything but water in Scotland. And so uh, the that was what you just asked, Matt, was a very uh, kind of not contentious, but an interesting set of conversations occurred there because we study a lot of young healthy adults because they're right there coming to the laboratory. We study a lot of older adults because they've fallen. We want to try to fix that. What are we doing with middle age where we might be able to actually stop some of those spirals before they become problematic? And there's not much data on that. And one thing is it's really hard to pick up when the system is starting to change. So when you transition from a young, healthy adult to middle age, right. you can start to feel it. But what what kind of sensors can we put on you? What kind of tests can we say? All right, Matt's going to go this direction if he doesn't get something fixed, but he's going to go in that fall risk direction if he does get something right. fixed, right? And it's hard enough to do when they're sort of um, right at the cusp of falling, right? But if we're trying to pick it up on the early stages, mm-hmm. that would be great if we could. And the the common theme of that conference was we need to do more with middle age because we need to better understand. We can't wait until the problem happens to right, fix right, it, right? right? Let's start working with our 40, 50, 60-year-olds, not just focus on our 70, 80, 90-year-olds, right? Uh, we still need to dedicate money and time and of resources course, yeah. to all those, but we can't have this kind of forgetting middle age population we're just neglecting. Mm-hmm. Do you have to like plan ahead for where that research is going or where the virtual reality and stuff is going? I mean, do you have to like, I mean, I guess that's the whole point of attending international conferences and having these shared re- you know, research opportunities. What kind of like planning ahead do you envision? I mean, obviously that's your role as the leader of the department. You really need to prognosticate, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And no, that's good. Yeah. I mean, part of it is driven by the technological resources that are available and it, it it's almost even even for someone that sits in this space 24-7, I'll get stuff sent to me. I'm like, well, that's really cool. I didn't know right. anyone was developing that, right? So <laughs> let alone, you know, the general population that doesn't think and, and work in VR all the time, um, you know, all the all the stuff that's kind of going on. So, yeah, I think uh, part of it's driven by industry because they're the ones that are uh, making things scalable and oftentimes doing stuff behind the black curtain that you don't even know until it comes out. Um, so one example of that is I really think uh, probably in the next decade, if not sooner, probably closer to five years from now, we won't be talking about virtual reality anymore. What we're going to be talking about is augmented reality, which is the merging of the real world and the virtual world. So Microsoft um, uh, created some buzz around this when they released a few several years ago now, the Microsoft HoloLens, where you I also remember you this. remember this? Yeah. yeah. You also still it wasn't near as big or anything, it wasn't a full headset, but what the HoloLens does is basically you can think of it as like safety goggles that you have on, right? And um, within those safety goggles, you can see the real world just like any other glasses, right? But uh, projected onto those goggles is a virtual environment. 
And the way that you make those things look real is there's a sensor on the uh, the front of the goggles that's scanning the real world. So it knows where the wall is. It knows where the, the couch is. And then there's some really cool YouTube videos out there of how um, you can make a shark sort of swimming through the air, but it won't swim through the wall because it knows where the wall is. So you can see the real wall. You can see it, but there's this virtual shark that's just kind of floating around what? doing its thing. That's where we're going to go. And that's where the cool stuff is because immersing someone in virtual reality is cool, but you can only take that so far. You really need this real world element to have it potentially have some sort of uh, transfer to the real world or, you know, some sort of uh, retention over time as you're re- training people up. And so augmented reality is really, really where the future is going to be. Um, Google's had, uh, Google had Google Glass where mm-hmm. the, those are on the way, similar idea. Um, they took those off and um, nobody really knows what they're doing behind the yeah, curtain. Yeah, I was going to say, what did, yeah, mm-hmm. is that just like, do you think they just tested that out? Like, and just check people's pulse on it? And then Google's yeah. got a habit of doing, do, you know, pushing out like technology and, and then like supporting it for a little while and then taking a few steps back and then coming back a few years later hmm. to really sort of push it out. They're doing it right now with their, they got a new media streaming, uh, and they're really working on this sort of how to, how to, to stream this high fidelity, uh, like gaming environment through their computers, like on the West Coast to somebody on the other side of the world effectively without any dips in quality or anything hmm. like that. So I, I would imagine that you'll see another iteration that was built off the foundation of Google Glass at some point in time, probably within that five-year span. Oh, Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think – so what really moved virtual reality along was in 2014, Facebook bought Oculus. Mm -hmm. So Oculus Rift was its own standalone thing. And then uh, the whole reason it existed is – uh, the field, the industry re- was really stuck in these big heavy headsets I described earlier. And then there was a kid out in California that said, surely there's a better way to do this. And one of the major technological uh, barriers was, imagine you're in this virtual reality headset, right? And you turn your head to the left. Your vestibular system, your inner ear canals tell you instantly that you turned your head to the left. But if the visuals don't get updated in real time, now you have, I turn my head to the left and then the visuals catch up and that gets people real sick real fast. Mm -hmm. And it's motion sickness is what that is. And so the disconnect between moving of the head and updating in real time at a whole bunch of speeds that were going to be necessary if you're going to make this a home gaming platform, you know, playing whatever games. That kid got that figured out, amongst other things. And so he did that in his parents' uh, uh, garage and got that all worked out. And then Facebook was doing sort of a survey going, how are we going to socially interact with people in the future? One way, they think, um, is that we are going to interact with each other virtually. So in the future, perhaps, maybe I don't even come down to this very nice studio, right? I'm in my living room with my headset on. You're wherever with your headset on. And then we have this dialogue, Mm -hmm. but in a virtual room, a virtual conference room or something. Now, I don't know that that's the direction we're going with social uh, interaction, but me, uh, Facebook thought that might be a way we're going to go. So then they invested heavily in virtual reality, bought Oculus Rift for $2 billion. And then uh, everyone else took note and said, well, Facebook is jumping into the deep end on VR, Sony, HTC, you name it, all the other big companies started devoting tons of money. That's what really moved the field forward. And this is only 2014. It wasn't even that long ago, <laughs> right? And now all of a sudden you can go to Best Buy and buy these things. You can get on Amazon for a couple hundred bucks just a few years later. So imagine what's going to happen when Google comes out with their new iteration of Google Glass. And then there's a whole bunch of other companies that are working on that kind of thing too. We're going to be in augmented reality sooner than later, but driven by industry. Even just, I remember being in 2004, I was in a E3 and 
Los Angeles, which is a big video game uh, entertainment expo. And there were virtual reality, I mean, real, like, Bobo virtual reality stuff. Uh, and like you said, you could put these sort of, like, goggles on. And this one, you even stepped into a little gate. Mm-hmm. So it had, like, a pressure pad. So mm-hmm. when you took steps, like, it sort of didn't work really well at all. <laughs> uh, and it made you super sick. I think I put it on and was in there for 20 seconds and felt like I was going to throw up. Wow. Like, it was rough. Right. But the way they've, you know, in sort of solved that issue with uh, the latency and, mm-hmm. and, and you know, just the better graphical fidelity uh, has, has gone a long way to sort of make it approachable to more people. You know, it's an interesting thought. You know, gaming is is for fun, right? It's a little bit of escape for reality. You're talking about mainly research, but like, yeah, it's interesting to think of this in like terms of after or not afterlife, but like the end of life. Like what if, what if you're able, you know, you're in a situation, you know, where, you, you know, these people now, a lot of times it's just sent to hospice and they're laying there like, what if there was a virtual reality? going down a darker path <laughs> yeah. than Whatever, I had man. expected, yeah. but that's but fine. I have an example, you know, you know not yeah. too far off that. Um, so there's a woman over in uh, Community and Therapeutic Recreation at UNCG, Judy Kenney is her name, where she's using virtual reality in pa- a pain management situation. So kids at burn centers when they have to get their dressings changed, oh, yes. right? And so um, that is an incredibly painful experience right. that those kids have to do on a fairly regular basis. So um, she um, is using virtual reality, and, and others across the country have done this too, and she's testing the fidelity of some other unique pieces. But imagine you're, you're a kid that has the situation. You put on the helmet, and now you're playing this game that is in – uh, a snow-filled area, you're throwing snowballs at whoever, right? It takes your mind off of this. And there's some physiological and psychological theories that actually suggest why this uh, uh, is beneficial. But in essence, it keeps your mind off what's going on. Yeah. So you're in a cold environment mentally. You're playing this game, so there's a distraction. And then the the nurses and whoever can change the dressings, and then you're done playing your game, and that's the end of it. And it's a great way to kind of manage your pain in that context. See? You did good, Josh. <laughs> you set on a, on a good knew, path. I knew I had a good idea. <laughs> um, so you've got some like I – mean, you don't like to brag because I know you pretty well. But like you've gotten some pretty incredible like uh, accolades and, and kind of grants probably from some of this stuff. Is there anything like you you would like to talk about or you would even mention to say like, you know, these are some of the things that we've gotten some extra money for and some supporters that sort of helping us push a, some specific narratives? I mean, is that worth talking about? Yeah. I mean, I think primarily because um, while I'm helping lead some of this, uh, we've been lucky and gotten connected with some other folks at UNCG that are incredibly talented in this space. And, and oftentimes, um, you know, they're the ones that, that need all the credit, not, not me for sure. So um, because they're doing the, the brunt of the work. So uh, some of the work that, that we've done uh, that's fun in the lab actually isn't um, related to the virtual reality, but another area of the laboratory is um, we develop smartphone apps that we can use the sensors on the phones to measure Ooh. someone's balance control. And because balance control is a surrogate for neurological injury, mm-hmm. we might be able to pick up when someone uh, has some sort of issue. And we've really been applying this in the context of concussions and subconcussions, so these repeated hits to the head that don't result in a concussion, yeah. but you're still jostling the brain a little bit, um, that, that may cause some both short-term and long-term damage. So how can we use you know these smartphone apps that tap into the sensors as a way to kind of measure these things? And so some of that work has been funded by the Department of Defense. Um, oftentimes we think about concussions and subconcussions in the sports world, mm-hmm. and plenty of those things happen of there. Um, but the Department of Defense has a lot of um, 
jobs that uh, throughout all of the different uh, forces that, um, you know, someone, their job is to train people how to shoot one of these big shoulder mounted rocket launchers, right? So in that case, they're getting a, a blast wave to the head, not only while they're training someone else up, but then they've got to back up and they got to do quality assurance and everything. So part of their job is to take small level blasts to the head. Mm-hmm. And over time, that might not be great. Then there's all the all, you know people who drive tanks. They're getting blast waves to the head. People that do the C4 demo, uh, demolition, they're taking blast to the head, right? So there's plenty of examples in the military where subconcussive hits are a, an issue um, through blast waves. And so we've linked up with some colleagues across the, the country that – and, and measuring different uh, different folks in different situations and how that may change their balance control with our smartphone app. So that's been uh, an area that I'm you know incredibly proud of and, and the work that uh, we and our colleagues are doing in that space because it's ultimately helping military health in the long run. So that that's a, a real big one. Um, the one of the other areas is looking at balance control, like I said a little bit earlier. So. Um, Dr. Lucy Reisbeck is a faculty member in our department. She's the leader of this uh, balance control um, grant where we're going out to Wellspring and some of the other older adult facilities across town and doing 12 weeks of balance training using very unique kind of specific cues um, and then seeing how, mu- how long it, st- it sticks, you know, up to eight weeks later. So it's a 20-week community training balance training intervention um, that she's leading. That, so you um, train them out. and then let them – and then measure them for Afterwards. improvement. Yeah, wow, yeah. that's Afterwards, cool, man. Yep. And so, uh, so that's been a pretty uh, cool project. Um, and then the I've got a colleague in the Department of Nutrition. This is our newest piece that sort of has taken off. Um, he is interested in nutrition education. So how do we get information to people that might not always have access to that information? So he does some work in rural areas or low SES, uh, SES areas, and so. One thing that kind of emerged from a series of conversations, how can we integrate virtual reality with nutrition education? And so um, Dr. Jared McGurt is his name. And so he is really um, uh, focused on delivering a nutrition education program through an avatar. So there's this federally developed nutrition curriculum that's really designed for someone to be trained up and then they go to a community center on a Saturday morning and then they provide that information to whatever community that you're you're working with. And that's great. That's a great way to give that information, get it out into the real world. Mm-hmm. But what if you had to work on Saturday, you don't have a car, you know, something happens, you just miss out on that opportunity, that community center. Which barriers add up for people that need exactly. this support. Exactly. Locally. So he saw virtual reality as a way that we might be able to overcome those barriers. What if we took that exact same curriculum, but embedded it in an avatar that was delivering that information? And that avatar would then get information that you're giving back to it. And then based on a decision tree on the back end would say, okay, they now understand this piece, I'm going to move on to the next section. Or after you check for understanding, they don't really understand that piece. I'm going to loop back and give some of that information. And it's all also um, built in the context of the environment. So you put in your address, it'll tell you if you live in a food desert or not. Mm -hmm. And it'll also tell you if you do live in a food desert, here are some solutions. Maybe dried fruits and nuts is a way to get some nutrition, right? It'll tell you where the closest grocery store is. It'll give you some physical activity options and so forth. And all this is built in there uh, in a project that we're doing for VR and nutrition right now. So there's some really cool work. That's, that's, that's going really on with my colleagues right now. Yeah. All right here at Sparty U. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> it's not just Call of Duty, people. That's right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. That's great. Um, 
Well, this is wonderful. This is – I love learning so much in these podcasts. It's so much fun. Um, well, I, I would open the floor. I mean, I, I, have, I have no more dumb questions. I mean, is there anything that we've missed that you'd like to add or anything you'd pump up? I know I know, folks can access your guys' work on the website if they just kind of Google mm-hmm. Veer Lab, V-E-A-R Lab at UNCG. I'm sure they'll find some of your stuff. You had a TED Talk that, did. that you did last year. That's probably still out there, right? It is. Yeah. It's on the website. Yeah, that was a, that was a really fun uh, opportunity because uh, to to be able to communicate this information in a very short and uh, clear time frame is, yeah. is challenging. It doesn't matter <laughs> even if you do talk for a living, right? Uh-huh. It's it's hard to. What was your time limit on that? It was like fifteen. Uh, 10, I think. 10, 10, 10 15 yeah. minutes. Yeah. We'll 10 have minutes. to put that. We'll put that on the uh, the, the Twitter account yeah, and stuff okay. like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I just really appreciate it of you guys you know, having me over because the you know the work that we do in our research group over here in CD, I'm really proud of it and have, like I said, a lot of colleagues there. But just the Department of Nutrition, I think, is and, – and the work that's going on over there, the Department of Kinesiology, the other work in the Community Therapeutic Recreation. I mean, there's such cool things that are going on over there that I'm really glad you kind of – you know, selected me. I'm happy for that. But it really tapped into what UNCG is doing and, and appreciate this outlet for people in Greensboro. They're doing really cool things. So, yeah, right. you know, this is this is a really awesome platform for people to come in and talk where, wherever, whatever sector of the community that they're in. Um, and just happy to be over here representing UNCG. Right on, right on. That sounds great. Matt, did I miss anything? I don't think so. I think it was... Uh comprehensive on your part. You love this stuff. You geek out on some virtual reality, don't you? <laughs> I like gadgets in general. You Do you know? own any of the, the Oculus Rift? I, or any of, I any don't. Of and part of it goes back to the motion sickness thing. I get <laughs> you had a bad experience. <laughs> like really bad, just in general riding cars or whatever. But it is cool. And the, the accessibility of it is just in the last since, like you said, Oculus came out and, and then PlayStation introduced their VR sort of capabilities and stuff like that. It's gotten so much more accessible. You can go down to Best Buy. You can use your phone. You can download cardboard patterns to make the headset to slip your phone into, and then you've got, you know, your little headset right there. there. So there's there's no limits. Yeah. Super cool. Well, uh, Chris, thank you so much for joining us, man. Um, You are a great man. You uh, certainly bring a creative uh, thinking element to our community, and that that cannot be uh, underscored enough, man. You're you're a genius in your field and and really doing great stuff here in Greensboro, too. You're a great man. You're a genius. Thank you for— Let me see if I can get out of the door. The door might not be wide enough to get my head through. Credit to your community. No one can take you, though. You have to stay here for for at least another 20 years and finish your career here. But um, that's wonderful. Thanks for joining us today, man. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate it. All right. So thanks for listening again, Chatterheads. Uh, Gate City Chatter is once again brought to you by the City of Greensboro, the Arts and Cultural Affairs Division of the Executive Department. And we are in cooperation with our friends here at Press Play Studios. Uh, New episodes are recorded weekly or biweekly. And you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at GC Chatter. And you can YouTube us and just search uh, Gate City Chatter on YouTube and you'll see our shiny heads uh, and smiling faces here in the studio uh, today. So... uh, uh, for, for my co-host Matt Feltz and our guest Chris Ray, uh, I am Josh Eric, and have a great day. Take care, everybody. Bye.